Welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. In this episode, we are joined by Josh Burson. Josh is a global research analyst, public speaker, and advisor on the topics of corporate human resources, talent management, recruiting, leadership, technology, and the intersection between work and life. In 2001, Josh founded Burson and Associates, known as the leading research and advisory company in corporate HR. In 2012, Burson was acquired by Deloitte. In mid-2018, Josh retired from Deloitte and started the Josh Burson Academy, the world's home for HR. Josh and his team of experts offer research, advisory services, and the Global HR Capability Project and the Josh Burson Academy, the only end-to-end professional development platform dedicated to HR leaders and their teams. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, please take a few seconds, leave a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Enjoy the episode. Okay, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. You bet, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And uh, easy way of getting started, if you wouldn't mind just telling our audience uh, about Josh Burson, kind of what you do and, you know, the kind of the, maybe the, a little bit of your background, if you wouldn't mm-hmm. mind. Sure. I'm an, I'm an industry analyst, but I've been doing research and consulting and education in HR for about almost 30 years now. It seems like a long time. Originally started in the um, online learning space in the early 2000s. And before that, I spent about 20 years as a sales service product manager marketing person completely unaware of hr <laughs> so learned a lot about it starting around 2000 in the training industry and um, since then have been not only doing research and writing lots of reports and studies but we developed a professional development academy for hr which is called the josh person academy so um, i'm very aware of the you know, the education and training and ongoing information needs that HR people are facing as everything around the world of work keeps changing so quickly. Yeah. And it, it's such an interesting industry as well, just the HR field and how fast everything changes, as I'm sure you know. I do want to, we're going to talk about a lot of things, just, you know, mm-hmm. we have you here and, and yep. you, know, you have so much knowledge around a lot of different topics. I want to start with the Global HR Capability Project. Okay. I'd love to hear more about that and what you guys are doing. <laughs> okay. Well, this is something I'm really proud of. I haven't talked about it too much. We, when, when I left Deloitte in 2018 and went back out on my own, we started building a professional development academy and courses and education for HR people. And a lot of companies said, well, where's your competency model for HR? And my reaction was, I don't think the world needs another competency model for HR. There's already a bunch of them. They're mostly the same. But I do think we need to define what the capabilities are that HR needs. And so one of the things I was working on at the time is the difference between a capability and a skill. And uh, the way I defined it, and a lot of people have now picked this up, is a skill is a technical fairly fine-grained thing, like using Microsoft Excel might be a skill or building a pivot table or learning how to use Java or, or HTML or something. But in HR, we don't not, I mean, we don't not need those things. So we need bigger things. We need to understand employment branding, onboarding, um, 
you know, how to build performance management systems, how to understand employee engagement. We have higher level um, capabilities. So what we did is after talking to many, many companies is we developed what we call a capability model of 94 capabilities in different categories that define what HR people do. And uh, we started assessing people against those capabilities and we now have a database of more than 4,000 people who've HR people who've assessed themselves against these 94 capabilities. And we can see based on tenure, role, uh, company size, location, geography, um, how these capabilities map and what are the capabilities that people are most in most demand and what are the strengths strongest and the weakest and we now have actually done work with companies where they've correlated their HR capabilities to their business outcomes. And they've found that in the business units or the business areas where the HR people are not as capable, there is higher turnover, there is reduced performance, there are more people problems. So we've more or less proven that HR capabilities are one of the most critical issues in employee experience and hiring and performance and all the things that we're trying to do. So, um, and from that, of course, we're doing a bunch of other things. Now we can do capability audits. We can do capability benchmarking. We built a bunch of learning journeys in our academy. So when people believe they need better capabilities in people analytics or design thinking or whatever it may be, we can point them to resources in those areas. And the next, the reason we call it a project is that this is a never ending thing. So, uh, public health is now a capability, well-being, mental health. You know, these are things that we didn't really think about two or three years ago. Those have become HR um, capabilities. And we, we're not only going to build training and education on all of these things, but we want to build a network so that HR people can find peers to help them with the capabilities that they want to develop. And the other thing about it I'll just mention quickly is when you look at the, the way the capabilities cluster, and we did a big project on this, there are clustering of capabilities. People in HR technology tend to know more about data, tend to know more about security, tend to know more about analytics. Uh, you know, They don't know a lot about necessarily employment brand or pre-hire assessment. People who know a lot about pre-hire assessment know a lot about interviewing. They're very sales oriented. So um, we've now figured out how these capabilities come together in what we call tribes. And what that does is this helps us go into HR organizations and show them where they have people that really need cross training or new opportunities because they've been focused on one particular area and they've never been exposed to another area. And that's another big thing going on in HR is much more cross disciplinary education. So it's turned into a pretty important project. And um, one of the most exciting things that we're working on is, is constantly getting more data and understanding it better and better. Yeah. And I was going to ask around those capabilities, you mentioned some are stronger in these areas and maybe weaker over here. Is is that going to lead to different recruiting efforts or is it more, Hey, if you lack, cause we talk about like strengths and weaknesses a lot in HR right. and, you know, focus on your strength strengths versus fixing your weaknesses. Is that the same when it comes to capabilities? 
Like, are, if, no, if you have, no. no? Okay. No, I don't think so. So let me give you a little context. There's a really interesting book I, I recommend for people in organ design and, and training called Range. And the author studied the performance of athletes, business people, entertainers, media people, politicians. He studied, you know, maybe 50 or 60 different high performers. And what he found about them is they were very deep in the domain where they eventually specialized, but they were also very cross-disciplinary. They jumped around and tried a lot of things in their career and, and later became very good at maybe a small number of things and built an enormous success around that. It's the idea of, you know, basketball players don't shoot from the same spot all the time. They try to shoot from all over the court. Mm -hmm. And that's really true in HR. It, you know, you could be a specialist, you could be a recruiter, and you could spend your whole year, your whole career doing recruiting. But sure enough, somebody's going to say, well, we need to do more diverse recruiting, or we need to recruit people from other industries, or can you find people who might be in jobs that are related to this job? And the next thing you know, you're talking about things that are slightly different from your core capabilities. So our belief, and most companies validate this, is that um, what HR people really need to grow and to um, succeed at a higher level is more cross-training. And a good example of that is DEI. Every company has DEI issues. Every company has a DEI strategy. Every company would like to be better at DEI. It is the lowest rated capability of all of the 94 capabilities in HR. It's an intimidating topic. It's a very complex topic. Um, if you're the head of DEI, you obviously know a lot about it and you spend a lot of time on it. If you're not the head of DEI, the chances are you kind of are a little bit intimidated about talking about it because you're afraid you're going to step on something. So that's a perfect example of something where we would like to make it possible for everybody in HR, regardless of the role, understand the basic issues and what they can do to impact DEI and the company and how they can make the organization more inclusive. And so um, and that's true for data. That's true for uh, almost every area. Um, you know, most people would like to learn more about new areas. The other thing, of course, is that everybody likes to have a career that that's varied, and and you want to try new things. And it's always it's always exciting to learn something new. So uh, what we want to do in HR is show people uh, career paths or pathways that are you know, really well-proven ways to get ahead. So instead of just randomly taking an assignment here or there, we think we can give people a little bit more direction on how to improve. Um, and then the third piece of it is, you know, this project is set up to constantly be updated. So next year, you guys are gonna all have to get capabilities in cybersecurity and everybody needs to understand blockchain and you know, all these things that keep happening. Every year there's something new. Um, we wanna make sure people are aware of what the new capabilities are, and they know where to go to get um, smarter or more capable in those areas. So, so it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of whole air domain. The, the other reason this project is interesting is you can take everything we're doing in this project and you can apply it to your own company, mm -hmm. to sales, to customer service, to manufacturing, to research, to, to everything that's going on in the rest of the business world. So, so we're learning a lot that everybody can use with the rest of their organization also. And, you know, we've had a lot of guests on, on the show that 
are in HR, maybe executives, and they came from operations background or something mm-hmm. else. It gave them this well-rounded business background. So when we're talking about the capabilities, and I know we can't talk about the whole time, but when we talk about the capabilities, it, would you suggest that people, we'll talk just within HR, go outside of HR to find yeah. certain capabilities as well? Well, it's a really good question. Absolutely. I, I think everybody in HR will become better if they could take a job rotation out of HR um, and then come back later. And vice versa, people who come from non-HR roles into HR think it's really easy. And then they realize, hmm, it's a little more complicated than I thought. Um, it's like if I you know, knew how to write HTML and somebody said, okay, we're going to make you an engineer, a software engineer, I would suddenly realize I'm not really a software engineer. I just right. know a little HTML. So um, that cross-training into new disciplines of business is extremely valuable because ultimately in HR, the peak of your career is when you become a consultant or a trusted advisor or a mentor to the business counterparts that you're supporting. And if you haven't lived in their shoes and really understood what their lives are like, it's a little bit hard to do. So so I think moving in and out of HR is really a valuable thing to do. Right. Just thinking out loud, would compensation in the future maybe be tied to capabilities and not job role? I'm just thinking sometimes maybe moving into a different department Right, it changes your. Well, this is, I mean, Michael, that's a, that's a big topic in every in in all of business in general. I mean, most companies would like to pay people based on their capabilities, not just their tenure or their level, or you know their prior job history. Um, and there's a lot of energy going into that right now. I think that will happen slowly over time. If you look at professional services companies, and I used to work for one, um, they give people a raise every year based on their success in projects, their reputation, uh, their um, the demand for their skills among other teams. So they've managed to do that because of the way their business works. Most companies are becoming more like professional services companies in terms of what people do. So it's getting easier and easier to pay people based on capabilities, not just level and tenure. So I... I... I want to move off of, of the capability project, but sure. I, I want to ask Jess, if you had any other questions to ask, and then before we move on, normally we would tell people where to find this stuff at the end, but you know, before we move on, I'd love to tell, have you tell people where they can find more information on your global sure. HR capability if you, if project. You go, if you go to joshburson.com, there's a button right on the menu called Capa- global capability project. There's a white paper. Um, if you'd like to take the capability assessment, we are offering it to people who join the academy. The academy is $250. You get all the training and everything too. We're going to offer the capability assessment for free fairly soon. We just haven't quite figured out how to do it yet, but um, but I'd, I'd welcome everybody to go through there. It's mm. really interesting. You'll learn a lot and you'll get all sorts of developmental tools as part of that. Very cool. Yeah, and we'll link it in the show notes. Jess, did you have any other questions on that piece? I wouldn't say that I have any questions, but if you couldn't see me nodding along, Josh, um, or for our listeners who couldn't see me nodding along, there was so much that you were saying that resonated with me. So just two quick things and one specifically regarding DE&I that really resonated with me in regards to, and then to kind of piggyback off of 
capabilities in multiple areas. So if you think about DEI specifically, it's weaved into talent acquisition. It's weaved into organizational effectiveness and development. It's weaved into performance management. So if you don't have a strong skill set, let's say in DEI, it doesn't allow you to be an effective HR business partner in those other areas, especially if DEI is a priority for the organization that you're working for. So I love that you mentioned that. And then in terms of the consulting related to businesses, and you know, you I think you uh, use the term, you know, you've reached your peak of of HR expertise when you become a true consultant with your business. And I couldn't agree more. Um, I think most HR professionals who have had an opportunity to do a rotation, or maybe they worked in the business prior, or maybe they were given the luxury of when they joined the organization to spend their first three to six months inside the business really learning it. I think all of those individuals would say that they were um, the most effective business partner they could be in those capacities. And they also earned the trust and respect with those business leaders more than they had in previous organizations. Organization. So thank you for mentioning that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you know, I think the other, the other thing, just on that one topic, one comment, hmm? I think you, I think we all have to respect the professionalism of HR. HR is a very complex, very important domain. And I think some people might under underplay it and how important and complex it is. And that's the reason these kinds of developmental assignments are so important. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, I know Josh Burson really well because I'm in the technology space. So I see a lot of your articles on that. So I'd be mm-hmm. remiss if I didn't go there for a second. But I do want to yeah. talk about, you know, HR technology in general changes like every day, right? And and I would love to understand since you have such a great pulse on everything that's going out there within the technology space, you know, some of the trends that you may see coming in 2021 as it relates to the technology itself, or maybe even the usability or how how companies are using it? Well, there have been three or four massive uh, changes over the last maybe five to six years, and they've affected every technology vendor and every technology buyer. Um, The first is the consumerization of the use of the tools. You know, it used to be you bought an HR technology you turned it on and you forced people to use it (laughs) and they didn't have any choice. If they wanted to get paid, they did it. (laughs) Right. You know, that's kind of not possible anymore. The the system has to be easy enough to use that people want to use it. And it has to be useful for the work itself, not just the HR part of it. So that's been a massive change of making these systems much more systems of engagement and less systems of record. The second has been, the intelligence of the systems, the use of AI. Now, when AI first became popular, nobody really knew what it was and it was a big deal. Every HR system has some form of predictive analytics or AI in it. It is trying to learn from the data that's being used to give recommendations or tips to make people um, better at their jobs or make it easier for them to fill out forms or to, to do whatever the process is. That is a massive change because AI is not something you program. It's an, it's an algorithm that gets smarter by itself. So all of a sudden HR tech vendors are data vendors and they need to understand the data in their systems because once you deploy the system into company A, it's gonna behave one way. And when you deploy it in company B, it's gonna behave a different way. So the vendors have very different um, you know, sort of 
capabilities themselves to do that. The third area that's very big is moving towards what we call experiences. You know, most of the HR systems were designed to be very transactional. I need to take a course, I need to go through a performance appraisal, I need to do a rating, or we need to do a nine box grid or whatever it is. Well, that's still there, but now it's how do we make that an experiential application that might have multiple steps and might be different depending on who you are. And so the design, success factors is a great example of this, the design has to be around chatbots or journeys or just different user experiences that are more like what we use on our phone and less like what we did sort of in a, in a typical ERP system. And then the fourth thing, which I think is maybe the most cool of all, is that the new generation of HR systems are really sort of like design tools. They don't, you don't just buy them and turn them on. You buy them and you configure them and then you use them to design employee experiences that are relevant to your company. And so, you know, I think there's an interesting trend where more and more of the platforms we're buying are um, not just open, but they really have design features so that you don't, you're not forced to um, pick it and use it exactly the way the vendor designed it because the vendor will never design it perfectly for every company, every industry, every role. So that's a four very big changes that all of the vendors are dealing with um, to make these systems even more useful and even more important in this uh, kind of hybrid work experience that everybody's going through. Mm -hmm. You mentioned art artificial intelligence and you, you see a lot, we talked about recruiting a little bit earlier for DE&I and, and you're seeing a lot in the recruiting space, right? I mean, being able to pick these perfect candidates, looking at, not, not just looking at necessarily because they worked here or here and they're in our industry, we want them. It, it's actually finding great candidates that say, even if they worked in completely different industries, right. it, it works with us. Have you seen that come to fruition at all over the last couple of years? I mean, we know that it's there. We know these systems are doing it, but has there been any research absolutely. done on the impact? Yes, absolutely. Let me give you two examples of that. Um, so one of our clients is a large pharmaceutical company. The pharmaceutical companies are all growing like crazy. They're all trying to hire scientists in genetic engineering and different parts of bioscience. They're all competing for the same college PhDs. Um, she said, you know, and they happened to buy a very, very intelligent recruiting platform. And the head of recruiting said, you know, we, what we realized is we can't hire people or even recruit them based on jobs and what their job was. We have to look at their scientific skills. We need to look at the projects they've worked on, the research they've done, the uh, people that they've worked with. If they've worked with other eminent researchers in a certain area, that tells us something about them. It's a completely different way of recruiting. And so their particular platform they're using is helping them search for people with you know, specific scientific experiences and skills, regardless of the job, and she said, we don't really care what their job is because once we get them in here, we'll figure out what to do with them. But we need those uh, scientific backgrounds. A second one is a more mundane thing, but I think it's really an interesting example. So over the last year or two, one of the most critical skills and jobs and very shortage of supply is cybersecurity. And, you know, this year it's like even worse. And, you know, there was a sort of an expectation, maybe a belief that a great cybersecurity person is a great IT person. 
So they probably have database background, maybe they've done software engineering, maybe they've implemented SAP and they really know IT. Well, if you actually look at what cybersecurity jobs are, um, you know, using AI, you find that one of the roles that is the most uh, adjacent and best fit for cybersecurity is a financial auditor because financial auditors are meticulously good at pattern matching, finding things that are not correct, diagnosing problems, digging into data. And so many companies have told me, we now realize once they figure this out, we got a whole bunch of people in the company that are perfect fit for this if we can just give them three or six months of training. So there's all sorts of examples like that, that AI is starting to teach us about the adjacencies of skills and the locations of skills. So you don't have to keep looking for somebody who's done this particular job before. Um, because by the way, you know, jobs are keep changing. The job titles keep changing. The types of jobs keep changing. Jobs are more hybrid than they used to be. So I think AI and recruiting is, as you said, Michael, is a massively important thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see a lot around metrics through AI, whether it's risk of losing somebody and, and a lot of these statistics. And I, and I always kind of wondered because, you know, for myself, like, I don't see the, the overall result of it. I know it's there, but there's and there's a lot of different points of data that it's pulling from, but it's, it's always hard to quantify it. So it's really cool to hear that you have specific stories on how this stuff played out. As far as like recruiting in general, outside of AI, you know, you recently mm -hmm. said that it's the biggest challenge today. And, mm -hmm. and I'm curious, you know, what challenges you're seeing maybe through the pandemic and post pandemic that you weren't seeing prior and then, you know, kind of what your predictions are moving forward. Sure. You know, I I think the job market today reminds me of the job market around 2000. If if you were if you're in the job market around 2000, you remember during the dot com boom, everybody needed to hire Java engineers, everybody needed to hire database people, everybody needed to hire e-commerce people. Nobody really knew what all that stuff was going to be yet, and it was impossible to find people. Um, I I live in San Francisco. We paid almost $300,000 a year for a Java engineer. This was, the, this was 21 years ago. Wow. And we didn't really know why we needed that person, but everybody else was doing it. So we figured we needed it. <laughs> right. um, and we're kind of reaching that point again, that in a lot of roles and not just technical roles, in service, in sales, in retail and manufacturing, truck drivers uh, are in short supply, logistics people are short supply, I talked to a retailer that runs gas stations. She said, we can't get enough people to come work in our gas stations. Uh, and part of this is people haven't come back to work from the pandemic. Part of it is the economy lost a lot of workers. A lot of people retired during the pandemic. And part of it is the birth rate is down. And then there's other, you know, sort of demographic factors. And, you know, if you think about all the things that happen in HR, you could make an argument that recruiting is the most important of all because if you don't get the right people into the company, it doesn't really matter what you do <laughs> right. in all the other areas. So, so it's very, very hot. And in addition to you know, the fact that there's all sorts of tools and approaches and you know, bonuses and various things people are doing to recruit, um, internal mobility has become also very hot because 
most companies have lots and lots of people that are ready for a new assignment, would like to work on something new, already know how the organization operates. And one of the studies we just looked at, um, seven very large companies, 30 to 40% of the jobs they were filling now in this particular business cycle are coming from internal candidates or people who had worked for the company or applied for jobs in the past. So they're recycling the silver medal, medal candidates, the people that didn't get jobs the first time. They're looking, you know, very significant focus on internal mobility and talent marketplace tools. Um, so recruiting is very, very interesting right now. It's very exciting um, and, not, and it's not easy. And, and so there's kind of a new war for talent. And, uh, you know, you see companies throwing bonuses and, uh, you know, extra vacation and all sorts of things out there to try to get people to come. And I think we're just going to be dealing with that for the next year or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've had, and we've had an episode, or maybe we've talked a couple of times about just the remote aspect of work now and how that's kind of changed recruiting in, in general. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit with you as far as mm -hmm. hybrid, hybrid work and your thoughts on it. We've, we kind of have two camps. We got some that want people back in the office and then we got people that never want to go again and the hybrid seems mm -hmm. to work. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? And, and I imagine you have some customers that have done both. Yeah, my experience with it and having been in, in a hybrid work environment myself for a long time um, is that what the pandemic basically did is it eliminated the stigma of remote work. Most companies did not tolerate remote work. They didn't like it. They had all sorts of built-in biases against it. Uh, you know, maybe they even monitored people if they didn't show up. And then all of a sudden they realized, oh, hmm, remote work isn't so bad. It actually works pretty well. It's different. We have to manage people differently. We have to give them more tools. But lo and behold, they actually get a lot of stuff done at home. Um, we save time on commute. People, uh, you know, actually enjoy not having to spend time getting to the office and getting dressed up. Um, we lose some things in the process. It's harder to work on complex projects. There's certain types of innovation you just can't do online. Uh, and the human connections are very, very different. There's a, you know, a significant number of people that joined companies during the pandemic that never met their boss. Uh, you know, so they, they need to you know, kind of catch up. And so I think hybrid work is a very significant next step in the future of work. I don't think we're gonna go back to the way we were. And I don't think this is something that's gonna be temporary. I think this is a permanent wake up that people can work in different locations at different points of time. And you know, not everybody, 75% of workers have to be in a store or a plant or on a truck or in a warehouse or something. But for the people that are in uh, you know, more mobile roles, most companies have found that it works fine I mean, just today there was an article in New York Times that I thought was great, debunking this ridiculous idea that when people come into the office, they bump into each other and creative things happen. Nobody has ever proven that to me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been in offices many, many times in my career, and it's nice to be in an office. It's nice to talk to people and get together with people, but it's also very disruptive. It's very unproductive at times. Um, and I think people are able to now say, okay, let's design this so that it's the best of both worlds. We can have flexibility and remote work where people prefer that. And we're going to get people in the office too. 
There's going to be periods of time and projects and uh, management reasons why we want people together. And some of this will be done at a corporate policy and some of this will be done at a local level given guidelines. Uh, and it's only it's only a couple months into this. So I don't, I don't think we actually wrote a thing we call the hybrid work playbook, which has a whole bunch of examples of how companies are doing this. Um, you know, I don't really buy this, you know, I think that, I think it was Jamie Dimon from uh, JP Morgan who said, well, you're not really coming back. You're not really back to work until you show up in the office. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a, a little bit of an unenlightened position. And I think he said things like that because he just wants people to show up. But, um, and the other thing that's really big about hybrid work is trust. You have to trust that when somebody's not physically present, they are working. And, you know, that's different for some mm -hmm. people. Right. <laughs> some CEOs don't have that level of trust. They haven't created that level of trust. Um, you know, again, my experience in my role for many, many years is 99% of people want to be successful at their job. They want to do a good job. They want to be re rewarded well for the work they do. So they're not going to sit around the house and goof off. Mm -hmm. They might have distractions. They might have dogs or kids or other things to deal with. But most people actually have worked harder during the pandemic than they did when they came into the office because they had more time. Yeah. So I think hybrid work is about embracing all of that and putting together a plan for the next wave of economic growth. Yeah. And there was always distractions. It's just different ones now that, right. that you're in the home. Right. We talked a little bit about internal mobility and, and I think about hybrid working for, I looked at the people that may miss out on a lot of things as well from, from not being in the office all the time. I think of maybe recent graduates who are just starting their first job or new hires that don't get this opportunity. Because as much as I think working remote has removed kind of the imperative of networking to work your way up and it's kind of based more on your achievements. But there is still that level of, hey, you know, I'm in a 50,000 employee company and I've never met anybody. And, right. and I, you know, so how do you feel about that? And, and will the new flexible work arrangements, will those require some tweaking to make sure that these experiences are done right? Yeah, I don't think anybody's completely nailed what, what the flexible hybrid work model is going to be. They're playing with it and everybody's playing, you know, everybody's mm -hmm. getting some things right and some things wrong. So I don't, but, but I do know, and I would reinforce the idea that physical proximity is important. When I was working for the consulting firm, I would often, uh, you know, get an email from some senior, you know, partner or whatever. We need you in Switzerland next Tuesday for a meeting on such and such. I'm like, what? You really? Well, you know, here's why we need you. It's a big client meeting. We're going to do this design thing, whatever. So, you know, I would always sort of scratch my head and think, is this really worth the effort? Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of the time I'd get on the plane, I'd go. And then I realized it was really worth it. Right. And the, the things happen in face-to-face -face meetings that are unpredictable, very long-lasting, memorable, and very important. So I also think we have these companies that say, you can be remote for the rest of your life. You never have to come back. That's not really correct. They're going to be missing out on a lot. There are many times when it's important to meet people, especially early in your, in your job and in your career. And young people, frankly, don't have 
that this great big house at home anyway, they would just as soon get in the office and be with other people. So, um, so I think the reality of it is physical proximity still is important. So companies are going to have to just build great work environments where people can come in and meet and have a productive work experience and remote at the same time. And that's what most companies are doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it looks different for every company, different industries. Mm-hmm. It's it's going to be different, which kind of brings me to our next point. You also, you had an article that you wrote about the voice of the employee and it, it talks about how CEOs and other leaders looked at employee listening as a periodic engagement survey, right? Mm-hmm. Once a year, twice a year, whatever it may be. And you talk about listening on many different channels to give the employees an opportunity to speak up, give suggestions and contribute to these types of decisions like hybrid work. Can, can you talk more about that and kind of that? Yeah. I don't know if that's old thinking of the well, annual I, surveys, but I'll tell you, it's good. Let me take just two minutes on that. Um, you know, I call it continuous listening, and it's it's tricky. It's hard. It's new, but it's very important. Uh, every study we did on the pandemic, we did a study of DEI, a study on EX, a study on pandemic business response. The number one most highly correlated practice that drove success was listening, listening to employees, because employees have all sorts of insights on what the company could be doing better. Uh, They have suggestions. And then of course they have complaints and problems and you wanna know what they are. So if you do a survey once a year, you're not gonna get very much of that. Almost none of it. If you do it every quarter, you get a little bit more, more. You do it every day, you get a lot more, but it's very tricky to do it every day. You have to have statistical randomness so people don't get all sorts of stupid surveys and get tired of filling them out. You have to have somebody to analyze the data. So what's going on, as you guys know very well at SAP, is we're building a new technology infrastructure for listening to employees that is very similar to what we've done for customers for maybe 15 or 20 years. Surveys, uh, open-ended questions, uh, voting boards where you can submit suggestions and vote on other people's ideas, roundtables, town halls, video uh, communications. Um, And so what this does is the HR department has to kind of organize around this. You can't just have an IO psychologist who does an annual survey and writes a report. That's not really going to work anymore. So there's a new domain of HR of really the uh, listening group or whatever you might call them. They also have to develop and buy systems that not only collect data, but analyze it because the data will come in on a regular basis from employees, and then you have to quickly route it to the person that needs to get it. Uh, I mean, I've talked to companies where there's a, you know, some HR person saying, well, I'm looking at all this input and I'm constantly sending emails to people about all these things that are going on. Well, that's not gonna scale. So so Mm. the new breed of systems are really more, um, you know, what I call shortening the signal, the the shortening the distance from signal to action. They're really feedback tools that get data in from these surveys or uh, you know open comment systems, analyze the data and then send it to the people that need to get it. Mm-hmm. And it's really exciting. I mean, this is really happening now. The technology is very sophisticated. And I think most HR people just haven't quite reorganized around it and really standardized on their technology enough. But it's a hugely important practice. Uh, and it does come up as one of the most important capabilities in HR now is is having good data about what's on employees' minds. Right. 
Right. Do you see any new roles added to HR with these changes that are coming? And maybe maybe it's already happening. Yeah, no, there's a lot of data scientists and whatnot. Well, there's the data science roles, which are clearly big. Uh, Experience design is a big domain in HR, either learning experience design or other parts of experience design. Design thinking is a big role. Um, Understanding natural language processing and chatbots is important in HR. Uh, Those things actually work. They're not just, you know, they're not just tinker toys. They actually do amazing things. And so you need people to monitor the chatbots and then uh, teach the chatbots how to be smarter. That's a, that's a capability. Um, there's new roles in security and uh, GDPR because now we have a lot more data about people. There's new roles in well-being. You know, most companies didn't have a chief health officer, chief uh, well-being officer two or three years ago. Now they kind of do. And HR is being asked to weigh into that and to really understand the well-being issues in the company. Mental health, for example, is a big topic. Most people don't have HR skills in mental health. So, uh, you know, those are just a few of the things that yeah. occur to me as, as new job titles that have come into the profession. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves. And HR, I think, has not as much now, but, you know, I was looked at more kind of administration and compliance and whatnot. And I love the shift that it's making towards kind of these experiences and impacting the business in a much different way. Um, switching gears a little bit, I know we're, we're running lower on time, but you recently wrote uh, about skills taxonomy. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd love for you to explain what it is first and, and talk about why it's so important. That, that podcast was the most frequently downloaded podcast I've done. Really? 78,000 people have listened to that podcast in the last two months. So it's kind of blowing my mind. Okay. So the, the, the simple thing is we used to have these things called competency models and you would write down a bunch of competencies and then you would come up with a one to five assessment of each one. What does one level of one look like? What does level two look like? And then you would try to use those competencies for recruiting. And then you try to use those competencies for training and you try to use them for leadership assessment and so forth. And it generally was a very valuable exercise, but it became a very, very bureaucratic, out of date part of HR and never really got used. So the new approach, which started uh, maybe about a decade ago was, why don't we come up with a skill, a word, that characterizes the skill needed for that task or that job. Now, unfortunately, the word skill is also a kind of a poorly defined word. Nobody really knows. Is a skill, you know, picking up a 50 pound weight or is a skill running the manufacturing plant? You know, there's teeny tiny, tiny skills and there's big complicated skills. So, so that's why we have, we call them skills and capabilities. And we like to teach people that capabilities are groups of skills aligned towards particular business um, objectives. But anyway, so, so all this skill data is being captured now by all the HR tools, all of the learning systems tag content with skills. They identify what you're searching for and what you consumed and they, uh, they try to infer what skills you may have. Um, at the end of a performance appraisal, if your manager says, you know, doesn't collaborate well, 
needs more help in collaboration, then collaboration is a skill, just got to put on your development plan. Uh, although, by the way, maybe the learning system calls it teamwork and the manager called it collaboration. So now we have two different words for the same skill. So anyway, we're, we're, we're basically we're living through this explosion of skills data. And basically there's a bunch of it in the recruiting systems because of all the job searches. There's a bunch of data skills data in the, in the learning systems for all of the consumption and content publishing and learning. And then there's a bunch of data in the mobility system where we're trying to match you know, person A with job B. So if you have a talent marketplace, it's got a skills database in it. So most companies have three or four skills engines running under the covers, trying to figure out where all these skills are gonna be used. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what a taxonomy is. And a taxonomy is a clarified, organized um, library or architecture for all those skills. So we don't have teamwork in one system, collaboration in another system, and working with others in the third system, all referring to the same thing. Now, you know, every company would like to have one taxonomy and they'd like to have it all in one place. Um, today, that's not really possible. The bigger vendors like you guys and Oracle and Workday, you know, are, are really building what are called skills clouds or skills engines that are intended to be uh, consolidated views and, and sources for all of this data. But it's early days for that. Most companies haven't been able to figure out how to do that yet. And they're buying tools that have, uh, you know, miniature skills engines in them. And the stage of the market we're in is most companies are saying, hey, we better sit down as a management team and build a taxonomy because these software systems aren't going to do it for us. They'll each do whatever they're made to do, but the vendors don't understand our company. And so what we're really advising companies to do is to build a team that can work on the skills taxonomy, uh, you know, take these duplicative words and bring them together uh, and put together what the capabilities are that you wanna manage the company around. And that will teach you more about the tools and where the tools are strong and weak. Some of the tools are black boxes. You can't get in them. They, they don't really show you how they work. Other tools have much more, you know, design and development capabilities in them. So it's a very, very interesting new domain of HR. It's gonna be just more and more important year after year. And um, it's, it's forcing companies to just put together a project to make sense of all this and to use it. And there's a lot of experimentation. People are you know, buying a vendor's product and then they're trying it and they're buying another vendor product and they're trying it and they're trying to see what happens. And the vendors are thinking, oh, that's interesting. We didn't know that would happen. <laughs> right. Everybody's learning at the same time. What's, what, so what's the ultimate goal then of, of combining all of the, you know, creating this taxonomy? The ultimate goal, the, the dream come true goal is we're going to have a database that has all of the aggregated skills, experience, capability data about each, per, each person in our company. And every time we have a new job or a new role or a new responsibility or a new project, we'll look in this database Got and we'll it. find the three people that are the perfect fit. Right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that makes total sense. I, it, it's fascinating stuff. It's, it's crazy. So you said that was the most downloaded podcast? It's, or? The, it's the number one. Th now, maybe it was just the day I published it, but I mean, it's, it's a big topic. Yeah. And, and I think, 
right now, I think HR people just need to know what it is. They don't need to solve it yet, but they need to understand it because mm -hmm. the vendors are throwing these words around like crazy and they all sound the same. Yeah. Well, hopefully this helps. I, di I didn't know what it was either until you, you just explained right. it. So how can people get a hold of you, uh, whether it's social media, your websites to learn a little bit more about um, you know, what your company does? Okay. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my The website is joshperson.com. I'm pretty easy to find. I do a lot of public speaking and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we are um, we are basically an education research company. We also do consulting and I'm willing to talk to anybody anytime. So I'm not that hard to get hold of. I'm busy, but if you've got something going on in your company that you're trying to figure out what to do, I would love to hear from you. So please reach out and um, and we'll, we'll, we'll help you. Well, this has been great, Josh. Again, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsherm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHEHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.